you have a Bible in front of you, I'm going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 12 for us, pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So, Isaiah chapter 12, six verses. Starting verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for a few moments to open your word. And Lord, you are the Holy One. You are our salvation. You are our song. You are our strength. You are our redeemer. And Lord, I thank you for a few moments to, uh, to learn about you a little more deeply, to be challenged in our lives. And Lord, I pray that your word this morning would would do as you promised. It would not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose through which you sent it. So if you'd be willing, I'd ask that you pray for yourself, that your heart would be open and ready to have what God would have to speak specifically to you this morning. If you'd be willing, I'd ask that you pray for me, that my words would make sense and be clear. Well, Father, we trust you. We love you. Use this time. You know, we pray. Amen. Well, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church. I oversee all of the youth ministries, 7th through 12th here and over both campuses. And I don't do all of that myself, thank God. Um, I have a great staff and we have a crew of uh, 40-ish plus volunteers that, uh, that help us in that endeavor. And uh, we meet right across the street uh, in the gym uh, nestled behind the college auditorium over there. And so we do have a youth ministry and that's where we reside. Um, so, so it's fun. But to, to dispel any mystery about what we're going to talk about today, I, I think it's very obvious at the very beginning. The first verse is we're going to talk about thanksgiving, giving thanks. Chapter 12, verse one says, I will give thanks to you. And so we're going to talk today about Thanksgiving, not the season um, of Thanksgiving. That would be awkward. Uh, we've kind of passed that. Uh, but it's really where we find ourselves in Isaiah. And, and so if we were to answer the question, you know, how are we going to talk about Thanksgiving today? There's a lot of different options that, that we have. Um, what's the reason? Well, we could look at the psychological and physiological benefits of giving thanks. Um, I read an article in the Journal of Happiness Studies. I'm sure you've read it as well. Um, people with higher satisfaction with life, positive effect and optimism and lower depressive symptoms tend to experience higher levels of gratitude in their daily mood and on a day-to-day basis. People tend to, uh, to report being happier, more optimistic, and more satisfied with their lives and less anxious and depressed than do their ungrateful counterparts. And so we could talk about the physiological and psychological benefits that come from being a thankful person. You will receive benefits in your life if you are generally more thankful for things, if you're a gracious person. We could do that. Uh, we can talk about the relational benefits. Joseph Stalin, leader of the Communist Party and... Uh, 
communist dictator said this, gratitude is a sickness suffered by dogs. And so we could talk about all the relational issues and paranoia that circle that guy as an ungracious fellow. And the fact that you'll probably not have many friends if you have a ungracious uh, personality, you will, you, you will suffer relationally from that. We can talk about how it's commanded. Um, Thanksgiving is commanded to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. It says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. These are all commands, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we could talk about the requirement that God has for you and me to give thanks. We could do that. And if, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been in moments when giving thanks wasn't a helpful suggestion. It was a required reality. You know, you had that plate of food and you were in Mima's house. And she cuts out this square brick of substance and slaps it onto your plate. And you look at that and you see that there's broccoli and carrots and onions of all sorts and kinds, that all of these were gathered earlier during the day from the inner recesses of the outdoor freezer and combined to this concoction and slapped onto your plate and they called it casserole. And, and you looked at that and, and you, you look to your mom and you look to me, Ma, and you look to mom and mom says, now what do you say? And in that moment, you're in a quandary because you realize there's two things that have happened in the same moment. One, this isn't a joke. You've, you've got to eat this. <laughs> and secondly, mom is going to make you lie in front of God and Mima and everyone else. Mom is making you lie because you did not ask for this, but you are receiving this. And if we're honest, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Isaiah, what you've seen thus far is that it seems like a bad casserole for the nation of Judah. Uh, over and over again, they say, woe to you, this is going to happen. If you look in back in chapter 10, if you've read through that, and I hope you have, um, what it says is, hey, look, if you trust in Assyria, God is going to bring destruction on you. It's going to happen. And if you read in chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 5, it says this, they are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation, big word, bad word, to destroy the whole land. And if you, if you look at this, and if you're a person reading the scriptures or you're listening to Isaiah literally preach this to you, you're thinking to yourself, man, this does not sound positive at all. And in the middle of that, we find ourselves in chapters 11 and 12 in this moment in which God says, in that day, you will give thanks and it just seems odd, you know? It just seems weird that in this moment of, of, of a hope of destruction, of destruction surrounding you, that you would sit there and give thanks. Um, I was happy to find that I was the only person um, that, that found this to be true. Um, I found in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says this, some have questioned why Isaiah placed these verses here. Thank God, me too. But characteristic of this great prophetic writer, he alternated the message of judgment with the message of blessing in contrast with the Messiah's future reign of justice and righteousness. The nation in Isaiah's day was ruled by leaders who did not care about the people under them. When these words were written, the Northern kingdom was already in some despair uh, and the coming fall in, in Israel in 722 should have warned Judah that God is active in the affairs of his people and Judah should have realized that she too would be destroyed if she persisted in the activities characterized by the north. It seems odd that he would nestle this 
look of hope when it's surrounded by destruction. But what Isaiah is doing and what he's offering to these people is he's, he's pulling back the curtain, so to speak. He's pulling back the curtain and so we can actually look and see what God is actually trying to do. As we read in Isaiah chapter 11, um, you see this beautiful portrait of perfection. Um, and it's an interesting portrait. You, you see that, that someone's gonna come, a branch from Jesse. We know more fully that that is the Messiah King Jesus who has come. But a branch from Jesse will come and he will rule all over the world. And the, the wolf will lay down with the, with the lamb. The lion will eat, um, it's crazy in verse, uh, verse seven, it says the lion will eat straw like an ox. Um, verse eight, the nursing child will play with the cobra. And you've got this environment that's very, very odd. Uh, we don't experience that environment today. And in the midst of this, what is really happening is Isaiah is painting a picture of perfection for them to look forward to. And if we're honest, discipline is easier to deal with if we realize the goal. If we can see what's, what we're headed towards, we can deal with discipline in the moment. I played uh, tennis growing up. And my parents, uh, in watching me play tennis, realized that this guy needed some work, right? And so they sent me to tennis lessons and I didn't have a good backhand. And so I would kind of slash at the ball like that and never really worked very well. I had a terrible serve. I would throw the ball up and hit it like a frying pan. It was, it was all very bad. And so I went and I got lessons to play tennis. And what we did in playing tennis is we would do drills. And so he would sit there right in front of me like a masochist sitting down and he would have a bag of tennis balls and he would throw them out to the side, keep on throwing out to the side. And I had to run over there and do a forehand and run over there and do a backhand. And each time I would mess up, he would stop me and he would say, okay, let's change your grip. Let's change your form. Let's change the way you're doing that. And he would change the way I was doing it. And he also changed my serve and I would serve a ball and he'd say, no, 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 that's not what it is. And so he would literally changed my complete form so that I would have the right form to make the serve. And so everything changed. And after weeks of this and months of this, I I began honestly to get discouraged because everything that I was doing was wrong. He was constantly correcting me until one day I showed up early to practice. My parents had dropped me off early and I watched him play with another person before he was going to be practicing or training me. And as he's hitting the ball, I realized that, hey, that's the backhand he's teaching me. And as I watch his serve, I realize, hey, that's the serve he's trying to teach me. And I thought to myself, okay, if I continue to be under this guy, and if I continue to listen to what he's saying and do what he's asking, it's going to produce a player like him. And he was good. I said, okay, I can deal with this. I can deal with this discipline in the moment if I see where it's all headed. And in the book of Isaiah, where we find ourselves in chapters 11 and 12 is the curtain is removed and God is saying, look, 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 here's, here's a little prophetic look as to what I'm going to bring in the world. There is a beautiful landscape ahead of you where there is peace like you have never experienced. And he says in chapter 12, verse one, when you see that, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Although there was discipline, the discipline didn't last for eternity. There came a point when discipline stopped and comfort was given. 
And the response of Israel in verse two is this, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. See, our response comes from an experiential reality. You see, the nation of Israel will experience comfort. And when they experience that comfort God gives, they will respond and saying, God is my salvation. He has saved me. He has rescued me. He is my strength in my song. That word strength means like a fortifying fortress and song just means joy. What do you sing about? What you're excited about. You you listen to Justin Bieber songs and he's singing baby, 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 oh, and I got that girl. Because why? He's excited about the girl, right? That's what you write songs about. That's what you sing about. That's where joy comes from. And he's saying, God is your strength, your fortress, and he is your song. He is the joy that you express. And when God's comfort comes, you will respond in this way. It's an experiential reality. And see, and salvation in the mind of the Jew is different than in our mind. In, in our mind, we think of salvation as belief and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And, and that is part of what salvation means. But for them, it was actually much bigger and, and in some ways different. The Jews were promised um, a specific region of land, the nation of Israel. And for them, salvation meant freedom from all oppressors and peace in this land of Israel. And when they're singing of salvation, of God being the strength and the fortress around us, what they're saying is God has brought peace to everyone around us. And when you get the language of chapter 11, when it says the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, what he's saying is all of these things that were enemies and hostile toward one another will be at peace. And if you're a Jew living in this day and when there's only promise of destruction in chapter 10 and only promise of destruction in chapter 13, this is an oasis of hope in the middle. And you look at this and you read this and if you're listening to Isaiah's words and you are open to what God is saying, you're saying, that is exactly what I want. And the result when God gives this is verse three. He says, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. When you see God giving all of this, when you see that he is is one that is saving us, that he's comforting us, that he's giving us everything that we need, the result will be verse three. You will joyously draw from the springs of salvation. At that time in the nation of Israel, water was a big deal. It's not that big of a deal here. Um, It snowed a lot the other day and we're like, it can stop precipitating if it wanted to. You know, although if you like snow, man, you enjoy that. Anyway. But water was a big deal because it was a desert country. It was a desert society and water was um, not easily come by. And so when you found water, you joyously drew water from that place. And what God is saying is, look, when you experience what I'm offering, when you come to me and you see my salvation, you won't want to leave. It's the place you want to be. That is the result of what God is bringing to us. But the challenge is this, although we know historically this was an offer given to them, the reality is they never responded completely in this way. We'll see that in 722, um, Assyria will come in and destroy the the nation of, of Israel and will bring havoc on the southern kingdom of Judah. In chapter 13, we'll see that Babylon will come and destroy all of them. And Daniel, you can read, and that's when many of the captives are taken away to the nation of Babylon because they didn't respond to God's offer. Isaiah 55, 2 says this, why spend money 
on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fare. God's saying, come to me. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will satisfy your deepest needs. Psalm 16, 11 says this. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, the offer that God is giving is if you come to me, every need you have will be satisfied fully in me. Come to me. But the reality is the nation didn't. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You've rejected me. And you've looked for life in something else. You've pursued something else. And what you found in that place, I hope, is that it's been empty, but you refuse to come to me. The same offer was given by Jesus. Jesus came to the woman in the well in John chapter 4. And he says to the woman, he says, here, uh, can you give me some water? And she says, who are you? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why have you come here? And Jesus responds to her with this. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus reiterates the same principle that in him is life, the life-giving water that we all long for. He reiterates the same principle in John chapter 7. There is the feast that happens in John chapter 7 in which the Jewish people would um, go to uh, the pool of Siloam and draw buckets of water and they would pour the water out. And they would literally recite this passage from Isaiah. They would say, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And Jesus stands up in that moment and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Pointing clearly that, hey, if you really thirst, if you really want your thirst satisfied and quenched, look, you just come to me. I'm offering it. But the reality is, if we're honest, you and I, we quench our thirst on other things. C.S. Lewis says this, that we, are, we far too easily settle for mud pies in the slums when a day at the beach is offered. We settle for something lower than really what God is offering to us. And you may, you may resist that reality. You may say to yourself, well, wait a minute. Should, isn't success something that we should chase in life? Shouldn't um, academic, you know, I'm paying a lot of money to go to college, some of you. Shouldn't, shouldn't academic success be a, a goal in life? Isn't, isn't that having a happy family, a happy home, a, um, a mortgage, a baby, a dog, a couple dogs, I've got all of those. Yeah, are, are those things what, what brings satisfaction to life? Shouldn't I chase those things as well? Listen to an interview by Tom Brady. Um, football quarterback uh, of the New England Patriots. In 60 minutes, he did an interview. And in the 60 minute interview, it said, after looking at all of the success that Tom Brady has had, his $60 million football contract, um, endorsement deals, as well as uh, commercials all over the place, they were surprised to hear this. Tom Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me? Some people say to me, man, this is what it is. I have reached my goal, my dream. Me? I think, God, there's got to be more than this. The interviewer then responds to him, well, well, what is it? Tom Brady says, I I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 
He climbed to the pinnacle. He, he had it all. He has it all. But when asked him, when questioning him, is, is this it? Did you arrive? He's like, man, I, I feel like there's something more out there. C.S. Lewis says this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know, I experienced this in my own life. I ran track in college and the goal of running track in college is to compete at the, at the highest levels, um, regardless of what sports you're doing in college, is to compete at the highest levels. And so I qualified to run at the NCAA championships. Very exciting. I also qualified that same year to run at the USA TF championships. Also that year, I got a 4.0, 4.0 in school, right? So it was like, everything's going great. You know, it was like my own little mountaintop experience. And I go to, is my junior year. I go to run um, the championship meet and I run my race and I feel empty. I feel miserable. And I go and I run the USATF and I run that race. And at the end of that, I just, it's not that I did bad. I just, I, it was just empty. I felt empty. And then that summer, I went to spend some time with my cousins in Colorado and uh, train in, in the mountains of Colorado. They live in Pagosa Springs, beautiful area. And one day as I'm uh, about to go out on a run, my cousin is directing me on where to go. And he goes, okay, look, now just stay on the main road. Don't go off to the right. Don't go off to the left because it'll just dead end and you'll just have to come back to the main road. So just stay on the main road. And so I start my run and I just start praying as I'm running. I'm like, God, why do I feel this way? Why, Why am I so empty? Even though I had achieved everything that I wanted to, why do I just feel empty and dry in this moment? And into my mind reiterated my, my cousin's words, stay on the main road. Because I'd been going off and chasing everything else. The success in this arena and success is not bad, but when it becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes an empty thing. He says, just come back. Come back to the springs of life. Draw there and you will fully be satisfied. You see, God doesn't tell us to give thanks out of routine because it's good for you because it might be helpful in life. He gives us thanks because it is, a, it is an experiential reality that he is better. You see, even in this passage, what, what he does is that he provides us with several things in which fuel our giving of thanks. He gives us perspective from the past. He shows what he provides for us in the moment. And he also gives us a promise of the future. God gives us perspective from the past. If you look at chapter 11, verse 16, right above our passage, it says this, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came out of the land of Egypt. What he's bringing to their remembrance is what God has done in the past for them, his past faithfulness. And we give thanks to God, not just because of what he does in the moment, but what he has done historically, the past faithfulness that God has had, both in your life and the lives of fellow believers and his faithfulness in the Old Testament. He led a nation, his people. He would not neglect or leave or forget his people. Our God is not like that, but also for what he provides in the present. God gives us a realistic, real experience with him, a realistic comfort He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. 
And he also gives us a promise. Chapter 11, more than anything else, is a promise of what God is bringing in the future. The beautiful destiny that this whole thing is headed for. The reason for the pain, we can deal with the pain. Is because we know that this is not the end. God will not leave us in pain and destruction. His hope is to bring us to this beautiful, beautiful portrait that he's painting. When everything that is wrong will be set right. And the challenge is, we find ourselves in the middle of that. You see, God's kingdom program, we are in the middle of the already and not yet portion. You see, God has already done many things. Um, from this chapter 11, it becomes, we see that, yeah, Jesus is the root of Jesse. Jesus came, the spirit of the Lord was on him. It gave him wisdom. He led very well. He did a great job. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, but all of this hasn't been fulfilled. The lion isn't with the lamb. Um, I was watching the news a little while ago and uh, a, a lady got mauled by her pet monkey. You know, he's, he's crazy. A couple years ago, uh, the crocodile hunter, Jeff Corwin, got killed by a stingray. Didn't see that one coming. I thought he would, thought a crocodile would be in there. But it, it was, it, it's, it's, and we'd look at the world and say, no, no, there's still destruction. There's still pain. There's still um, the animal life that rebels against us. If you have pets, you realize this. And if you look at that and you say, we're, we're, we're not there. We haven't arrived. But if we experience God's greatness, we then express it out. Even though we have not fully realized this is what he is painting in the future. And if we've experienced God's greatness, our response is to express it out. The rest of this chapter is, um, is basically communicating that. What have you experienced? If you've experienced the goodness of God, what that should naturally result in is a movement to share it with everyone you know. Chapter four says, um, in that day you will give thanks and you will make known his deeds among the peoples. Chapter five says, you will then say, let it be known throughout the nations what our God has done. You see, when we experience greatness, the greatness of, of anything, we can't help but express it. Um, many of you are going to be watching the Super Bowl tonight, right? Why? Are you like a huge cheese head, right? Are you, you a Steelers fan? There might be one of you in here. But most of us, we're, we're not, it's not that we're just so enthralled about those two teams or that particular game. What do we want? We want to see something great. And when we see something great, a great pass, a great play, what do we then do? We tell everyone, Aggies, why are we A&M fans? Because we want to see something great, right? And we want to then tell everyone about the great thing that we saw, particularly UT fans. You, know, we, you want to experience greatness and then you want to share that greatness with everyone that you know. I was watching a YouTube video not too long ago and um, I'm not an opera fan. It's just not my genre of music that I listen to frequently. Um, but as I was watching it, there was a man named Paul Potts and he walks onto Britain's Got Talent and he's standing there in front of Simon Cowell and Simon says to him, what are you gonna do for us? And then he goes, I'm going to sing opera. You know, it's Britain's Got Talent. That's my bad British accent. And then Simon Cowell just kind of looks to the side like, oh my gosh, are we really gonna deal with this. Looks back at the guy and then Paul Potts just belts out this beautiful opera music stuff. It's, it's amazing. 
And I'm not a fan of opera, but when I saw this greatness, I tell you what, I told everyone about that YouTube video. I showed up at work today. I'm like, you got to check this out. And I'm telling everyone about the greatness that I just witnessed because greatness experience turns to be greatness expressed. And the point that Isaiah is bringing in this song is saying, look, when you've experienced the goodness of God, what he has brought to this earth, what he has brought to you, you can't help but share it out. But as I said, we're in the middle. The land is not perfect. Our world is not perfect. And sharing this message isn't guaranteeing that people will be receptive. I remember when I first started walking with Christ personally, several of the people on the track team said, said and it came back to me that they were saying this is like, oh, that's Kevin. He's doing his Christian thing. Maybe you've experienced that. Today, the, the sharing of this world and, and proclaiming it to the nations can be very challenging, particularly when some of those nations that we're trying to go to are, are struggling with their own issues. Government's falling apart. It's not safe to share the word today. John Patton, in 1858, felt the commission, the call that he needed to go to the islands of the South Pacific. And a couple years before that, a a man named John Williams had been killed and eaten by cannibals. Mr. Dickinson, a friend of John Patton, said this, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Patton responded, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And at the great day of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. I love that. It's worth it. The greatness of our God and the picture that he is painting is worth it. And it makes me willing, it makes us willing, it should, to sacrifice all else for what he is offering. One other story. Polycarp is one of the the first century martyrs. It came to be known to him that he was actually going to be killed for his faith and he was hiding in a haystack. And as he's hiding in that haystack, um, the, the Roman um, officials find him and they drag him out and they stand him before court and a group of people. And they say to him, consider your age, because he was 86 years old at that time. Consider your age and recant. Just say that Caesar is Lord and be done with it. And you can live the rest of your days in peace. And Polycarp responded with this. For 86 years, I have been his servant And he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? As tradition records, authorities then took Polycarp. They stuck him on a stake and they lit him on fire. He asked that his hands not be bound. He said, look, the Lord who has brought me thus far will allow me to endure this. I don't know if it's just true or not, but history records or the, um, that, that he did not burn immediately. And then one of the soldiers and seeing this and the people, the crowd that is watching this, they're, they're becoming horrified as they're watching the spectacle. 
And one of the soldiers grabs a spear and drives it through him. Is it worth it? Is it worth the sacrifice of our life for the sake of our king? If we see who God has been, if we see who God is, and we, if we see what God is bringing, oh, it's worth it. As a result of Polycarp's sacrifice, many non-believers who were witnessing became believers. The Christians became encouraged to stand. And in not too long after it, Asia Minor stopped the persecution of Christians. In life or in death, God can use you. Is it worth it? A couple points in application before we close. You know, many of us, we don't need to travel to some far off land in order to share the gospel, to express this message to those around us. We just need to go to class, right? <laughs> because we know once we're in class, people from all over the world have come to Texas A&M University and they are, they're open to hear what you have to say. Some of you, it's at work, and um, I know many of you are engineers or that sort of thing, and there are people from foreign nations that are also engineers right next to you in work, and it would just take a moment, an invitation, and the love of God if this message is worth it. And some of you, some of you need to take seriously the summer projects that are being offered this summer. Maybe that is your first step to go to the nations and say, my king is worth it. I'll sacrifice all things for his sake. And pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning and, and your word. And God, we, we wait for the day when you will wipe away every tear, every pain that we have experienced in this life. And it will only be joy with you forever. And Lord, we thank you that you give us portraits. You pull back the curtain. You let us see what this whole thing is headed towards. We thank you. We praise you for it. And so, Father, I pray that you give us boldness in the present to take these words, take the goodness that we've experienced in you and share it with everyone we know because, oh, it's worth it. Father, we love you. Give us courage. In your name we pray. Amen.